You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Serious talk about the sacred book. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord. And others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work and just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE for 30% off and free shipping. microdose.com. Promo code NORMALPEOPLE. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of The Bible for Normal People. Today, we are talking about thinking critically about the Bible. But before we jump into that, Pete and I want to announce that we will actually be at Wild Goose Festival July 12th through the 15th, where we'll have a live podcast. We don't actually yet know what our podcast is going to be about, but we do know we're going to be there. And we're going to be there with some great folks like Barbara Brown Taylor and Jen Hatmaker, some folks who have been on the podcast. So they'll be there speaking and doing their thing. And it sounds like it'll be a fun time. So if you're interested, please check it out at wildgoosefestival.org and just know we'll be there doing our podcast thing. And it doesn't matter what it's about because we're the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. Yeah, why would you even ask? Right, it doesn't really matter. No. Now, just as we say that, I just need to let people know that we're kidding. Yeah. I get emails occasionally, people saying... I like your podcast, but you guys are really arrogant thinking you're the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. So I like the ones who are a little more humble than that, and they like ask the genuine question of, well, what does it mean that you're the only God-ordained podcast on the internet? Can you defend that? Can, yeah, what does yeah. that What does that mean? <laughs> Exegetically? <So, laughs> no, we're just snarky people here, and we have fun. We have low self-esteem, and we have to project it somehow. <laughs> so, Okay, good. Today we're going to talk about thinking critically about the Bible. So maybe, Pete, why is this a topic? And what is it? Well, you know, thinking critically about the Bible, that right away sounds negative, but it's really not. I think thinking critically in general, I would define it as looking at a topic that you're familiar with, but looking at it from a point of view that's different from the point of view that you're used to having. So, sort of stepping outside of yourself and not assuming that your point of view is normal and right and absolute, but trying to look at something from another angle, from another point of view. And thinking critically when it comes to the Bible, I think is a pretty important thing to keep in mind because it's very easy to sort of suck everything into our own point of view. But looking at things from another point of view, specifically, I mean, we can go in different directions here, but you know, looking at things from, let's say, the point of view of antiquity, 
of what were people thinking back then? What do we know about life back then? What could they have be expected, let's say, to to understand about the world around them? And looking at it from that point of view, rather than privileging our own modern way of thinking about things, I think, you know, is, is a way to get into yeah. scripture and trying to understand it, I think, better, you know, than, than making our own assumptions. And ironically, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's sometimes the most conservative people about the Bible who bring in uncritical thinking, let's say, into the text by assuming certain things like, you know, Genesis is a science book because it has to be because God wouldn't lie to us. Well, I want to back up a little bit because I think it's important, I think, to note, and I, I think I can assume this uh, about you too, Pete, that when, when I say thinking critically about the Bible, that's actually a little bit of a misnomer because it's more that I'm thinking critical about my thoughts about the Bible. I'm really criticizing, or criticizing is a bad way of saying that, but I'm taking a look at my assumptions and my thoughts about the Bible and putting them next to other people's thoughts about the Bible and seeing which makes the most sense. So, it's not really being critical or or thinking critically necessarily about the Bible, but it's taking a look at my own thoughts about the Bible. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's yeah, it's not criticizing the Bible. It's more being self-critical in how we read it, which is hard to do, and you can never stop being self-critical. Well, I think it ties to this idea. I, I remember when I was in college, and even afterward, when I was a pastor, having people who the the common phrase was, "Well, you may interpret the Bible, but I just read it." Uh huh. That like that's not thinking critically. If, if you start the conversation with, well, I don't interpret the Bible, I just read it, mm-hmm. I just see it for exactly what it is, then we really can't have a conversation with that person about thinking critically because we have to assume, which I think is important in the beginning of this conversation, that we all interpret the Bible. Everyone interprets it. Even the act of reading any text is an act of interpretation. Mm-hmm. And if we can't separate ourselves from the text, if we think that we're just reading it just as it is, then we're going to have a hard time thinking critically. Would you have anything to add to that? Is that, is that sounding correct? Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with that. You know, we're always interpreting the text, and, and that invites us to be critical of ourselves, not paranoid, but just holding our interpretations loosely. And that's another way of thinking critically about the Bible, about listening to others, and how they interpret the Bible, and sort of sifting through that and trying to discern what are better ways to interpret this text, and and respecting different voices and how they interpret the text. But, you know, when we come to the text saying, like, like you said, Jared, I'm just reading it, I'm not interpreting it, again, that, that sounds pious, but it's really somewhat delusional because everyone is interpreting it. And the, whoever would say that has learned how to interpret the Bible from a community, maybe from a pastor or from a church or from, you know, someone on television or whatever. And, you know, that's what you've learned. This is the way the Bible is to be understood, period. All discussions begin from that point of view. 
that's not thinking critically. You know, I was thinking there's also some other code words that can tip us off to whether we read the Bible critically or not, or again, whether we are actually able to think critically about our own assumptions. And those are phrases like, oh, it, the Bible's really simple to understand. The Bible's really clear about what it's trying to teach. Mm-hmm. Like those for me are kind of, that tips me off to think, well, I, I wonder if they're thinking critically about all the different ways that one might take that. So, I think that helps as thinking critically about the Bible. Those would be mm-hmm. kind of approaches that we would say wouldn't really be thinking critically, as if if you have, oh, I'm not interpreting it, I'm just reading it, or, oh, the Bible's really clear and simple, you're just overcomplicating it with all your theology and interpretation and context stuff. Or you're calling God a liar. Yeah. So, well, say more about what would be an example, like what's a passage that you might have encountered where someone would have... Or it's common to encounter the, uh, well, God's pretty clear about that. So, if you disagree, then you're calling God a liar. Right. Well, I I mean, boy, where can you not go for that? Something like, I mean, taking the Adam and Eve story and, you know, coming to a conclusion, let's say, like, this is a metaphorical or symbolic or mythic and all those things, they wrap around each other. They're they're not actually separate categories, but taking it as, as as a mythic story and not a historical account because of our understanding of how stories like this work in the ancient world, and also clues from the text itself. You know, I've come to the conclusion that the fact that there's a talking snake is a loud genre clue from the biblical writer that this is a story, and it's a story of great theological importance, but it's a story. So, anyway, that's, that's how I look at it, but, you know, I can imagine engaging someone saying, yeah, but it says that the serpent talked, and it says there are two people, and it's a guard. Garden, and that's what it says. So, you know, if you don't believe that you're calling God a liar. And it's like, well, no, I'm not calling God a liar. I'm trying to understand this text, not from my own assumptions, but what ancient assumptions might be. And, you know, the response might be again, well, yeah, but you're still calling God a liar. So, at that point, you're, you're not able to have a really critical kind of back and forth discussion about how that story is to be read. And this is very common. You know, it's, you know, critical scholarship, that's what it does. Ideally, it's not perfect. I mean, there are weird people there too. But, you know, critical biblical scholarship is trying to look at these texts from the point of view of ancient authors and ancient hearers, and not from a modern or an ecclesiastical point of view, a church point of view. And, you know, that's, that's, I think, very valuable to do. Is that all that there is? No, but it's still very, very valuable. And, and uh, I think that's a good place to start better than what the Bible says is what I think it says, and that's all there is to it. Well, and I think you named something, too, that I would have experienced in my tradition, and that is thinking critically about the Bible is in some way opposed to faith. So, there's the examples I think of are like with Jonah and the whale or the big fish. So, Jonah and the fish are, I, I just remember when I, I kind of came to the conclusion, I'm like, well, I don't, I don't think the point is to say that there was an actual man named Jonah that was swallowed by a fish. Like, we, uh, in my tradition, it was like, that's the miracle of it is that this guy survived being swallowed by, like, that's the point of the story. And so, to question that is to lack faith even though, like, for me, thinking critically about the text is saying, no, no, I, I just don't think the story is trying to say that. I don't, I don't think the story itself is giving that. But what people heard me say is, oh, 
I don't, I, I don't believe that a, fi- a man could ever live in the belly of a fish. And therefore, I think this is all make-believe. Mm-hmm. And so, somehow, there was this litmus test of, like, the hardest way to think, like, the interpretation that's the hardest to accept the reality of, if you don't take that as the interpretation, then it's because you don't believe that God can do miraculous things. So, mm-hmm. if it's, yeah, I don't know about, you know, some of the Jesus's miracles. I think maybe the point was symbolic. I think people hear, oh, so you just don't believe that God could do something like that. And and so, I, in, in some sense, I think there's this critical reading of the Bible, trying to really understand why the authors wrote these stories in the way that they did is somehow seen sometimes as opposed to faith, where we just accept it as it is. Yeah, I think that's a very important point. Critical thinking is not caving in to lack of faith. It's looking at clues, like you talk about Jonah, clues from the text itself. And again, putting that into some sort of a, I guess to see context is a big word, literary context, reading the story carefully, but also historical context. And that doesn't mean you have to know the exact year or decade, but we know we're talking in the ancient world 2,500, 3,000 years ago with some of these stories. And it's a fair question to ask, what would they have understood? In the same way that it's a fair question to ask, what could we expect a medieval writer to have known or understood when we read them today? Should, Should we read them from our point of view or from their point of view? And I think actually most people are immediately in tune to the fact that with other literature, we can't just assume that it's written for us right now but it's written for others, and we have to do the hard work of digging into that. That's critical thinking. But when it comes to the Bible, there's the assumption that there's this immediacy where history and context don't matter, and the way I see it is God speaking to me. That's another thing, right? It's not just lack faith, but God is, you know, I prayed about this, and God is speaking to me, and this is what it means. On one level, I respect that. On another level, though, that can get you into some big problems because then God is speaking to people in really wildly different ways. Yeah. So, this is where critical thinking can come in and say, like, hold on, guys. <laughs> you know, m- maybe we're just sort of going off here in um, flights of fancy, and maybe we need to think and, and try to anchor this a little bit, sort of how the Bible is working and what it means by trying to respect the text enough. See, again, it's not lack of faith. To me, it's respecting the text enough to look at it and to change our views about it if need be. That's, that's, to me, that's real faith when you're reading the Bible. So, getting really practical, two things stick out to me about what you just said. When we talk about thinking critically about the Bible, or what we're really saying is taking the literary context, what kind of writing is this that we're looking at, and the historical context, what kinds of things would the original hearers and authors have been thinking about when they wrote this. Is that what we mean by critical thinking is where we don't have this immediacy where it's just me reading the Bible, but we actually have to take on the vantage point of this kind of literature and take on the vantage point of the original hearers and writers, editors of this text to truly understand what it means. Is that what we mean by thinking critically about the Bible? Yes, I think to me that's a big starting point, but that can lead to other things. See, I I also believe that that same kind of critical approach should be uh, given to 
traditions, you know, uh, church traditions, or taking seriously what someone in the fourth century might have said about this text, even if you disagree with it. At least looking to say, why, okay, why would some guy named Origen in the third century allegorize the Bible? And, we, you know, I have, with my students at, uh, at Eastern, we talk about allegory now and then, and how, you know, Origen seems to be a little bit crazy sometimes, but the question is, why does he do what he does? Why does he treat the text the way that he does? There are reasons for it that make perfect sense in his context that might not make as much sense in ours, but, you know, we can appreciate that voice and learn from it if we're... Maybe the other word, Jared, we have to introduce here is sympathy. Sympathy towards the other and, and, and reading other people's words from a long time ago with sympathy and not immediately funnel their words into our own narrow point of view and judging it quickly on the basis of that. Because the thing is, we'll never change. We'll never actually learn from the Bible if we don't read it critically. I, I would be that blunt in putting it. Yeah. There's a, a philosopher I like named Gilles Deleuze, and he talks about like being a good philosopher is about managing not to know what quote everybody just knows mm -hmm. so <laughs> like that's kind of the idea of learning actually requires ignorance i can't learn anything if i already know everything mm -hmm. and so that humi that basic humility i mean what we're really talking about is in order to think critically about the bible is really to think critically about our own thoughts which is all that's to say is our willingness to admit that we might be wrong about everything or about particular beliefs about God or the Bible or really, yeah, anything. And that's why critical thinking gets, uh, you know, some bad press because the process of thinking critically leads to a dismantling sometimes of our own structures of thinking about things. Mm -hmm. And what we don't often see is that that's probably a good thing. That's not the end of the world, but when we equate our faith with how we think about the Bible or God and the conclusions that we've come to, we've closed ourselves off to change, we've closed ourselves off to growth, to wisdom, to thinking differently, to thinking bigger, and all because we, we want to hold on to these ways of thinking because we've been taught that if we don't hold on, we're losing faith. And I think that's a very modern problem. Maybe maybe I'm wrong about that, but I think that's something that's more that besets the modern period more than other periods. Well, it's it's that conflation of faith with certainty, which we've talked so much about, rather than faith is the thing that carries you through the uncertainty. Yeah. Faith is the belief that God is with us and near us and not angry at us along the journey of our uncertainty. Right. Shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode and providing us with samples. You know, folks, I've had allergies my whole life, and I never knew what to do with them. I didn't even know that I had allergies. But anyway, one day I went to the doctor several years ago, and I said, listen, I keep having a stuffed nose, and it's just my throat hurts, and it's horrible. And he says, have you tried Claritin D? And I said, no, I haven't. And he said, you have to. See, luckily, for those of us who live with the symptoms of allergies, we can live Claritin clear with Claritin D. This double-action combination of prescriptive-strength allergy medicine and the best decongestant available relieves sneezing, a runny nose, itchy and watery eyes, an itchy nose and throat, and sinus congestion and pressure with ease. You know, I've been taking Claritin D for my allergies for about 15 years, and it's been an absolute life changer. I can go for hikes without my eyes watering like a fountain. I can speak without feeling like a frog has jumped into my throat, and my nose isn't stuffed all the time. 
Ready to live life as if you don't have allergies, it's time to live Claritin Clear. Fast and powerful relief is just a quick trip away. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin Clear. Use as directed. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. You know, Pete, I've been pretty emotional this week and I was trying to reflect on why that was. And it turns out, you know, my best friend from college just died. My mom's been in the hospital and I just haven't taken the time to reflect and process all of that. And it's been coming out in all these wonky ways. And that's exactly what therapy can help with. That's really been my experience with therapy as well. I've benefited tremendously from therapy. And I think lately I've been able to get to the point of why. It's learning to look at your situation more as an observer from the outside instead of just reacting to things, just thinking about it and processing the information. I find a lot of the problems become more manageable that way. And that's what therapy does for me. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and you can switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BNP today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BNP. Maybe, you know, what's being dismantled is not God. Maybe what's being dismantled is our own thoughts about God. And maybe that's needed. And um, yeah, I, I mean... Well, and I, I think that, I think that's a really important point that I think... I think it's a brilliant point. Yeah. A brilliant point. Yeah. Yeah. You, you certainly, you weren't the one that first thought of it then. No. Uh, but yeah, no, you know, I think of John Calvin, our beloved John Calvin, that I think he says in the Institutes, but now that I think about it, I think this was before factories. So I'm not exactly sure what the original would have meant, but kind of the, the idea that our hearts are idol factories, that we, we're constantly creating idols. We're, we're constantly creating God in our own image. You know, I forget that who says like, God created us in God's image, and we've been returning the favor ever since. It's either Rousseau or Mark Twain. It depends <laughs> yeah. on what, what, literally, I mean that I found, I found both the, that quote attributed to, to both. both. Yeah. Right. And I think that's just really, I mean, I think it goes hand in hand with this critical thinking that we have to realize that we're pretty deceptive creatures as human beings. And it's very easy for us to practically, because it just feels safe, to make God look just like us. And if we don't have a mechanism by which we can pull the rug out from under ourselves, or pull the curtain back and see what we're doing, if we don't have that mechanism, it can just get really dangerous. And I think yeah. that's what we're talking about when we're talking about critical thinking. Yeah. And maybe we can think of other examples here. You thought of Jonah a little bit and miracles and... We talked about Genesis, because this sort of stuff comes up. Well, any, see, anything having to do with history, I think, like, especially in the Old Testament, is subject to this, where critical scholarship has come to, I wouldn't, maybe not hard conclusions, but at least strong indications that there, there are some, some stories in the Bible that appear to be historical, but probably are a lot less so, like the conquest or the exodus. Not that there's no history behind it, but the biblical stories themselves are either greatly exaggerated or some would say mythicized. Historical events are given sort of a mythic flavor, like the plague narratives and things like that. But, you know, the the common response is that if we can't trust the Bible here, how can we trust it anywhere? Right. If, if history here 
doesn't work, why would history work anywhere, like with Jesus, let's say, and the crucifixion and the resurrection and stuff like that? But see, there again, critical thinking will help us to try to understand what were these types of literature that were being written, what were their purpose, when might they have been written, and what type of history did other people write back in that day? And, you know, there, there are ways of looking at these things that sort of respects the fact that there's a historical impulse, let's say, in, in some of these stories. But but the, the, the form in which we have them in the Bible, we don't have to find some way to mesh them up with modern notions of what history means. We need to mesh them up with ancient notions of what history means. And when we do that, some of the stuff becomes clear. Now, of course, that makes life a lot more messy for, for Christians who have been taught that you can rely on the Bible because it never, quote, lies. It always tells you the truth. It's always right. It never fabricates, right? And again, that's a very uncritical stance because that's actually starting off at a place that the Bible itself can't seem to sustain very well. You know, it's just, it, it makes for very awkward and difficult and, and problematic readings of stories that, you know, a lot of people have looked past already and found better answers to over the past few hundred years. Well, we're sorry to interrupt the podcast, but we want to take just one minute to mention two simple ways to support the work we do with the Bible for Normal People. First, head over to iTunes, rate us, and give us a review, but please do this only if you like us. If not, you know, first, rethink your life choices, but two, then just ignore this message completely. And secondly, check us out on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com front slash the Bible for normal people, and you'll find ways to jump into the community, join the discussion, and offer your support at, at various levels. And last but not least, we want to give our deepest thanks to some of the members of our producers group. These folks give us feedback through email and calls, and overall just help make the podcast what it is. So, thanks to Logan Jansen, Matthew Tringali, Christopher Lake, Josh Hamilton, Kevin Marshall, Robert Cochran, Tyler Tankersley, Robert Auth, Austin Hill, and Patrick Antos. We couldn't do what we do without you, so thanks so much. Now back to the podcast. As you're talking, I'm realizing if we think about certain traditions or churches that people may attend, I just remember thinking in the church I grew up that there was a lot of critical thinking. And then when there wasn't, I found a different church that I felt like had more critical thinking. But it always seemed to be there certain lines that you don't cross. It's almost like we want to tout ourselves as being as as critical thinkers and and evidence-based and and listening to the top scholars. And so, we do that. The irony there, or I guess guess it's a little bit of a, feels like a little bit of a bait and switch is, but you can't cross certain lines. So, I just remember in seminary, some more uh, more conservative of my professors who would, they're all about using any kind of critical scholarship as long as it doesn't cross certain boundaries. One of them being, mm-hmm. you know, the historicity, say, of the Adam and Eve story, where it's like, yeah, whenever archaeology or whenever biblical scholarship is confirming what we already, quote-unquote, knew or what we already believed— about the Bible and God, then we're all about it. We're in favor of using it. But as soon as it comes to the conclusion that we don't like, and so in some ways, it's we, we never were really critically thinking. We just were, we liked that these authors or these things, archaeology, it feels really good when it confirms what we already knew. So, I just wanted to point that out because I think for a lot of Christians, 
for me, it felt like I was being critical, but I didn't realize behind that there was this boundary that I had made where as long as we play in this sandbox and as long as what I'm reading is agreeing with that, then I'm I'm good to go and I can go as deep as you want me to go. But as soon as you kind of cross that line, it becomes now all of a sudden I can't admit that that's where the the text or the evidence leads. So then I have to start saying things like, oh, well, you are have bad presuppositions or, uh, you know, you don't have faith and that's why you're coming to these conclusions. Yeah. It's, it's critical thinking, I guess, in service of an ideology. Yes. And not even being self-conscious about that's what's happening. Right. But I think that can be tricky and I think it's important to, to name that. We can use the mechanisms of critical thinking but if it's not in service of this openness and humility to allow God and allow the Bible to be what they are, then really we're neutering critical thinking of the real power it has. Yeah. Now, see, I wonder, here, here's the thing, too. I can imagine people listening to this and maybe criticizing us for thinking that there's this magical thing called critical thinking that will make you self-critical, that will keep you from being ideologically driven. But maybe we can turn it around. So, what do you think, Jared? Isn't there a sense, too, in which even the act of critical thinking isn't neutral? Does that make sense? Right. Say more. I think I'm tracking. Yeah, just even even the, 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 um, the act, in other words, is critical thinking really that reliable because we're all blinded in some way, you know. Here, here's and let me put it this way: one of the one of the cuts on critical biblical scholarship, which I think is deserved in enough cases that it's worth talking about. But one of the cuts on critical scholarship is you guys just think you're being neutral here, and that you've seen things as they really are. So at that point, you've actually stopped being critical, and you're just all sort of coming at things from the same point of view, and you're saying the same kinds of things, and you're patting each other on the back, and it's just another form of fundamentalism. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. I'd be interested. I would tend to agree with that criticism of scholarship, but I, I, want, I don't want to say any more until I hear more of your thinking. Yeah, I mean, I, I do agree that that's, that's a criticism that's worth leveling and, and has been. I mean, I, and not all the time. And I would say more before the, the advent of postmodern thinking in biblical studies, which has been with us now for a good half a century, roughly, maybe even a little bit more, that, like, you know, we've talked about Walter Brueggemann quite a bit. You know, Walter Brueggemann is a critically trained biblical scholar. He also has a serious postmodern bent where he is becoming critical of the kind of criticism that he was taught. And I think that's healthy, but there are other critical scholars that may not be as reflective of their own methods. And in part because those methods have been so powerful in unlocking things in the Bible and helping you see, my goodness, the depth of this thing. You know, can you take critical thinking, oh, God, I hate putting it this way, but this is what people say, can you take critical thinking too far? Well, I don't think so. I think that's a uh, not a helpful way of phrasing it, because I think it's at a different level and at the risk of maybe overcomplicating it. I think it's important to recognize, well, let's just say it this way. You talked about fundamentalism. And for the circles we walk in and the conversations we have, I think people identify fundamentalism, this emotionally closed off posture, a need to be right, a kind of self-righteousness about my beliefs and 
and not having a self-critical eye toward my own biases and assumptions. I think that fundamentalism can be within the right, the conservative, the Republican, however you want to identify that, the evangelical, just as much as it can be in on the left, the progressive, the Democrat, the uh, the mainline Protestant, whatever, however you want to define those those polls. I think fundamentalism can live in either of those. And and one of the things I like to talk about, because I talk about fundamentalism and evangelicalism, and so I kind of upset and frustrate my evangelical friends. And then I talk about the fundamentalism I see in progressivism. And then I talk about the fundamentalism I see in atheism and kind of what I would call like a scientism, this unshakable belief that sort of the current conclusions that science is coming to is somehow the be-all and end-all of the discussion. And I think they all are are participating in the same emotional posture. So, I don't think it's really a certain set of beliefs that maybe lends itself there. I think it's this humility to not to like take it to a different plane, but talk about wisdom and humility and the posture we have toward the other human being right in front of us or next to us. I think that's where So, I don't think we can be, I don't think you can take criticism too far. I think the seeds of fundamentalism and arrogance can happen in any set of beliefs. Yeah, and that's that's a good point. So, I mean, in a way, channeling what you're saying here, critical thinking is desperately, critical thinking isn't the problem. Critical thinking actually is desperately needed in a in this sort of moment we are in the human drama where we prize our ideas and our the ability of our ideas to unlock the universe. Mm-hmm. And when we get those ideas and we like them, we hold on to them because they make sense of the universe for us. That's exactly where critical thinking can come in and say, hold on here, there are people in another part of the world who think differently about this. Mm-hmm. Why do they think differently, right? Or there are people in the past who have thought differently. Why do they think differently? Why do you think what you think? All right. Or better yet, why do I think what I think? You have to. It's better if it comes internally. Right, know? exactly. <laughs> Not somebody imposing it on you, because then it becomes a threat. You know, when people, it's it's delightful to see people especially young people, you know, like, you know, I teach, and and seeing them come to a critical awareness where their assumptions about how the Bible should be read were not assumptions that were held by Gregory the Great, or Origen, or Justin Martyr, or Paul, or Jesus and the Gospel writers, or the writer of Chronicles. And to see that humility and that actual relief on their faces that they don't have to get all this right, that there have been different ways of looking at this, and, and, and people have always sifted through Scripture within the context of their own cultural limitations or and cultural possibilities. We all do that. Origen did what he did with allegory because of when and where he lived. And that's how you handled sacred texts. And that's a great way also of handling texts that are immoral, like God telling people to wipe out entire nations, you know, and that's the, the way to read that is allegorically. So, there's, there are theological reasons, real reasons why Origen and others did what they did. And you may disagree with them, but you have sympathy for them, which means you have humility. And at that point, you're a part of a, of a conversation that's been going on for a couple of thousand years, not the one who closes that conversation off. And, and I think you raise a good point there, too, of community and how the community plays into that. 
where, you know, we're not just talking about an echo chamber here of being self-critical. We have a community of people as well. You talked about Origen and St. Augustine and all of these church fathers and mothers who've gone before us. And, you know, we just have billions of saints even today. And that's why I think you and I on this podcast often advocate for that decentering of yourself and see what, in, in some ways that may validate some of our thinking and say, hey, we may be onto something here. And in other ways, it invalidates it and say, oh, well, that's a pretty uh, idiosyncratic way of looking at that. Maybe we want to look at, you know, the, the cloud of saints here mm-hmm. and see where we fit in this larger conversation. And the only thing else I would say is, you know, we're talking about being critical about the Bible, but we're also talking about being self-critical. And I think those go hand in hand. And I think that's true for all of life and everyone's beliefs is we want to look at everyone's beliefs, look at the Bible, look at the people around us with a critical eye. Mm -hmm. But I think it's really important for that humility piece that we do the same for ourselves. Mm -hmm. And we end every conversation with, but I might be wrong. And I think if we can't, in all honesty, have a conversation about politics, religion, these divisive topics without saying, but I might be wrong, I think then we don't have that posture of humility uh, that's both critical toward other things, because I want to know what the truth is. So, I'm going to be critical about anything that I see, read, hear, but if I don't put that on myself, then we get judgmental mm-hmm. and self-righteous. So. so, so maybe critical thinking is tying some of this stuff together. A way of defining critical thinking is it's really it's an it's an intellectual act of humility where you're always considering other contexts, whether it's the context of the person next to you who sees it differently, or the context of some smart person from the past who sees it differently. Mm-hmm. And I think for me, again, as a biblical scholar, this is my bias, I guess, but looking at the ancient context and what authors were trying to say. And, you know, that if you think like that, that keeps you real busy. You know, it's easy just to sort of go forward full steam thinking that we're the center of the universe. But to do the hard work of seeing yourself as part of a conversation that is diachronically and synchronically deep, diachronically throughout time and synchronically right now at the present time in different Christian iterations across the world. You know, how dare we not think critically? Right. Yeah. <laughs> you know, how, how dare we think that that we can escape that because, you know, we're sort of the fourth person of the Trinity and we get it right, whatever. And it seems like the, the Bible itself encourages that. that. I mean, that humility of understanding we're not the center of the universe. I, I think that's really important because every time we say, what I, when I hear, well, you can't argue with God or God said it. And so, if you disagree, you're, you know, the Bible, God said it, that settles it. Yes. If that's the approach, really what I take that as is you're equating yourself with God. Because God didn't say it, you did. You just said it. Right. And so, if you're saying God said it, that settles it, you're saying God said it and I'm God. And so, that settles it. We can't have a conversation. Yes. So, that, yeah, I think that's exactly, I think the Bible itself pushes us toward this critical, which, again, we've talked about this so many times, but I think our Jewish brothers and sisters do this so much better than we do in how they approach the Bible and how they can disagree and that their spiritual lives are in the argument. They, they grow in the disagreement, not in the being right. Because Jewish faith, which is a very diverse thing, but I think it's, it's fair to say, generally speaking, 
is not rooted in being intellectually right. It's rooted in being part of a tradition of practice, which certainly has an intellectual component, but it's not as intellectually heavy-handed and devoid of practices the way this generic thing we call evangelicalism has been. It's not a church tradition, it's not a worship tradition, it's an intellectual tradition. And I think that's why it's it's harder sometimes for people from an evangelical point of view to think truly critically, because we've been taught not to. We've been taught that's the enemy. Like you said before, that's the lack of faith, that's calling God a liar, that's arguing with God, which we should never do, unless you're reading the Psalms, Job, Ecclesiastes, Lamentations, but still, you, know, you don't argue with God, that's not what you do. And you know, that can stifle our growth, I think. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, and it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for All People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener to the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at The Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction <laughs> level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. Well, and I, I think one of the critical mistakes maybe we've made in the history of interpretation, we talked earlier about privileging ideas and belief. Like, I think we're so afraid to change our beliefs because we've been taught that God's favor toward us 
depends upon having those right beliefs. And I think in a sense, we get that from the New Testament because the New Testament talks about belief. If you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth, Mm -hmm. if you believe these things. But I think there's also some way we've misinterpreted what it means to believe something. And through the modern lens, through the enlightenment and our focus on our ideas, we've equated belief with mental assent, literally affirming a belief in our mind and saying, in our mind's eye, or even out loud, hmm, yeah, I believe that, that that's what it means to believe something. But I think the New Testament's understanding of belief is so much richer and is so much more about practice and behavior and tradition than maybe we've given it credit for. And as a result, we have this really anemic, weak, fear-filled understanding of when and how and why we might change our beliefs. Well, I'm glad you brought the New Testament up because, you know, you're citing, I think, something in Romans there, right, about... Yeah, right. Right. And the thing is, what I would say, again, as a biblical scholar who who is used to this, and I realize not everyone in the world is used to this, but I look at a passage like that, I look at anything that Paul says in Romans, and I say, I have to read this critically, too. It's not just that Old Testament stuff that you read critically, it's also the New Testament that has to be read critically, meaning, why is Paul saying this here? What is this just a universal, abstract, philosophical claim, or is it a rhetorically meaningful theological claim in the moment, in the midst of, let's say, an argument that Paul is making in the Book of Romans or someplace else? And that's, again, that's a different way of reading the text. It's not dismissing the text, or and it's certainly not, boy, do I hate this, it's certainly not trying to get out of it. It's trying to understand what this text is saying so that I can be, I can more intelligently work this into my own life and the circumstances and the context that I'm in, right? As I mean, here, can I, here's a really good example, and it's a, it's a simple one, but it's still a good example. Take the issue of the role of women, I hate that phrase, but the role of women in the New Testament, which is sort of all over the place. But, you know, you have Paul probably in 1 Corinthians arguing about how women should wait till they get home and not speak up in the gatherings and then, you know, was First Timothy that women shouldn't talk in church? I was, is it First or Second Timothy? I always get those confused. I'm an Old Testament guy anyway, who cares? One, one of those letters that Paul probably didn't write that talks about women, you know, being silent in churches. And, you know, you, you look, for example, and, and you look at those things, and there are still many Christians who say, these are commands for all time, and women shouldn't teach ever, because you know, Eve was deceived, not Adam, right? And the thing is, I look at that, and you can look at that critically, not to escape the passage, but to say, listen, in that context, women may not have had, let's say, the the social status to speak in that way publicly, and to do so would have been an incredible social affront, and actually probably would have hindered the spread of the gospel by simply just obliterating some of these social hierarchies that you have in the ancient Greco-Roman Empire. But you see, to think critically about that is to say, okay, listen, I understand, I think I understand why these things were said, but what is our context? Our context is where women run countries and companies, and they teach all the time, and they do math, and they don't just wash pots and pans. You know, it's, you know, women are able to do, and in fact, do do things that men have traditionally done. And so, in our culture, the affront would be to do what Paul does. Right. See, there's an irony there that 
Paul may have commanded what he commanded because of his cultural moment. And we do a better job of following Paul, not when we follow the letter, but when we follow what is being modeled there for us, which is to look at our own context, our own culture, and what does it look like for God to show up here. But you see, that whole conversation never takes place until we understand our responsibility to read these texts critically and to try to understand what's going on. In other words, to read the Bible in in that sense like we would any other piece of literature. When was this written? What were the circumstances? How did this make sense? And what can we glean from that? It's funny that I didn't think about this before, but I think the New Testament is actually harder to think critically about because it's so dang quotable. And so, over 2,000 years in a Christian culture, we have these like shorthand phrases where we just take snippets. Like we talk about proof texting, but we just take snippets and kind of assume that we know exactly what that's supposed to mean. Like, oh, God works everything together for good. You know, little Romans eight twenty eight, or my favorite, like Philippians 4, 13. Well, you can do anything through Christ who strengthens you. Well, like you just take that snippet and I just know so many Christians who would probably just like not even blink at that. Be like, oh yeah, yeah, okay. We see it on t-shirts and sneakers and all kinds of stuff at sporting events. And even just to like get out your Bible and read the rest of Philippians 4 and to see it's just connected to contentment and not to accomplishing things. It's just fascinating to me that we wouldn't even go that far, much less what you're talking about, which is like, look at these bigger contexts of, of the role of women in that culture and how that's been changed now and what that might mean for our reading of the Bible. Mm-hmm. We don't even do the work of just looking at the three verses before it and after it because we have these like shorthand, just like shorthand things. We just don't take the time. It's like, yeah, okay, we kind of all just know, which kind of goes back to my point of the New Testament's harder to be ignorant about because we think we know. We just kind of like Deleuze says, the the key here is managing not to know what everyone just knows. Like, what's common sense? And we talk about the classic example, of the course, is the, the Christmas story, yeah. right? Where Or the we three kings from Orient are, where they're not from the Orient, they're not kings, and there's not three of them. We get like every piece of that story wrong. Mm-hmm. And yeah, we just have this like shorthand, common cultural misunderstanding <laughs> that we just take into our everyday life. So, it's just interesting because I think the New Testament's almost harder because it's more familiar to us than the Old Testament which is at least a little strange and causes us to scratch our head a little bit. And it's also not as Jesus-y as the New Testament. This is this is the final word of revelation where surely now God will not lie to us. Surely now God will tell us exactly what we should think and do. Surely here is a book where we do not have to think critically. Right. Enter yep. four gospels. <laughs> yeah, we start that story with four different perspectives. <laughs> which I think is God laughing at us. But... Um, or, you know, two different accounts of Paul's early life in Acts or in, in Galatians, or, you know, James and Paul that don't seem to be on the same page when it comes to grace and works. You know, it's just, it's fascinating to me that the New Testament gives the impression, at least people I think are, are normally taught, I know I was, that this is it. This this book is the final word and you don't it doesn't contradict itself you don't argue with it but that's the very book that is that seems so set up to force us to continue to take that responsibility to think critically and again critically doesn't mean criticizing it means asking basic questions about who what and when i see i get a lot more out of watching mash 
which I love. I grew up watching MASH. I, I, I get more out of watching MASH when I remember that it's set in the Korean War, but it's a critique of the Vietnam War. It just makes sense to me. I get more out of, you know, The Crucible when I see it set in, you know, the Salem Witch Trials, but I know it's about McCarthyism. You know, it just, it, it helps you understand those, those questions of context are ones we are always asking, and we always benefit in some level from knowing something of that context. And to even inquire of the context, that is already a critical exercise. In a way, you know, Jerry, I would say that all of us, on some level, do critical readings anyway. But like what you're saying before, I think when it comes to the Bible, we want to stop short of that because it seems disrespectful. Right. But I guess, you know, one, one big idea that I sort of want to leave everyone with, you know, is is that I think the Bible itself doesn't let us get out of it. It doesn't let us get out of the need to think critically because it's such an ancient and diverse and ambiguous text or, or collection of writings that you have to think through this stuff. You can't just not think about it. All right. Well, that was my final word. Jared, do you have one? Yeah, I would just reiterate again that we're not really talking about a set of beliefs here, but we're talking about how we approach our own beliefs, how we approach the Bible. And so, I just want to reiterate that humility, that openness toward letting the Bible be what it is, letting the person next to me be who they are and learn something from them and how they approach the Bible, as well as the ancients and how they would have interpreted it, all the way from the original writers and editors of this Bible that we have up through church history and all of the wonderful things they can teach us if we have the humility to say, but I might be wrong. So, just want to end with that, the posture of humility. Yeah, and and there you have it. And, and Jared, have you picked up on the irony that you're not giving the final word on the need to think critically? We are not. We we should probably end this episode with saying, but hey, you know what? Maybe we're we wrong could about be everything. Wrong. We could be wrong about everything we just said. Oh, my. Okay, well, listen, folks, uh, thanks for listening again to another episode of The Bible for Normal People. It's always great getting together with you and Jared and I yakking about things that we feel are important, and it's it's a pleasure to do that with you. And also, just, you know, remember, if you have a chance to come down to Wild Goose Festival in July, we'd love to see you, and, and you know, we'll be there for a couple days, I would imagine, probably, right, Jared? Yep, I think that's the plan. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure how long we'll be there, but probably at least a couple of days, so hope to uh, have a chance to to meet a lot of you down there. And also, um, I'm going to be speaking at the Evolving Faith Conference, which is at the end of October, that is run by Rachel Held Evans and Sarah Bessie, and that's going to have a lot of people there too, like Audrey Assad, who we've had on, Jen Hatmaker, and Mike McHarg, a bunch of other people, like 20 people are going to be there, but that's going to be a lot of fun, and if you have a chance to come down there, that would be great too. All right, folks, that's it for me. Jared, anything else? Nope, we'll see you next time. See you next time.